0: Hey, welcome to the Bible Savvy Podcast, a weekly conversation on how to understand, enjoy, and apply God's Word. I'm your host, Nikki Lucas, and I'm joined by Executive Pastor Eric Ferris and Teaching Pastor Clayton Keenan. We're about to jump into another passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan. But before we do, guys, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day is upon us, and so I want to ask a question. Christmas Eve, without candle lighting, would make you feel what? Fill in the blank. Hmm.
1: My first response is ill-equipped as a parent. So, three of my kids are young adults now. One is twelve years old. But when they were growing up, and we would be coming to Christmas Eve candlelight services, that was the one thing that I had as a parent to keep my kids engaged and paying attention. Like, hey, if you mess around, if your behavior is bad, you're not going to get to light the candle. Oh my gosh! And all the oh, way through the Christmas the service, right? As as a little kid. They would just keep asking how how much longer until we light the candles. So so Christmas Eve services without
2: candle lighting makes me feel ill equipped. Um, my answer is similar, but kind of kind of the opposite. Relieved that I don't have to hand a candle to my children. Okay. I mean, I would I would be disappointed personally. But having young children, uh, the the candle lighting is a mixture of. Uh, irresponsibility and fear so it's like it's like w- one kid is like waving it all around and I'm like your, your sister has long hair please don't please watch <laughs> out so I'm nervous and then uh m- one of my other kids um, is like I'd like to try this but then gets nervous because now she's holding fire and so then it's like oh now you're actually gonna do something stupid because you're nervous about holding the fire and then the wax drips on your hand and I'm trying to sing silent night and have this great moment together as a family in a church and uh now all I'm doing is monitoring you so I would be like this, this will be okay. I can, I can go without this. So you'd right be okay. It would You're make like, you no, feel okay? No, no, what not was your for, word? No, well, relieved. Wow. No. Only the, if my children the, are with me. From Only the am,
0: parental side of yeah, things? Yeah, so
2: the, the benefit of being a pastor is I come to the service once with my family, Yeah. and then I'm here the other time. So I can step in f- and enjoy silent night with just me and a candle in the congregation. But the one service that my children are in, I'm like, oh, this is stressful. So, yeah. All right, Clayton, okay. tell the truth here.
1: Have you ever engaged in the hot wax dripping on the hand game during Silent Night? Uh, I don't think so, no. No? no? Nikki?
0: No. What is it? What do you mean?
1: Like, just dripping hot wax on, like, the top of your hand.
0: Oh, your like, own hand, not someone yeah, else. Just or, to, like, coat the, your hand
2: with
1: wax? Or, yeah, or the person next to you just as a pain tolerance kind of fun thing to do? No. Uh, no. Just me? Okay. No, I th- no. I, that might be
2: the difference between you and us You're very. <laughs> That's the difference right there? Okay.
0: Nikki? Um I would I would feel sad. Um so here's here's the thing. So being in production, right, in the back of the room, um, we're normally like doing something to like continue the service, like keeping it going. So we don't often have the ability to hold candles in our hands when everyone's singing silent night. Um and so like I remember like a good few years went by where I did not participate because like I was doing something. Um and then I, I started going. Why, man, I like I miss that. Like I remember being able to come with my family and sit in the congregation, and I was always terrified that somebody sitting behind me was going to light my hair on fire. Yes, you have long hair because I have long hair. Um, and I just missed that for so like a few years. And so I remember one of our volunteers started coming and bringing us candles in the back of the production booth so that we could light them and not have like, like if they're in front of us and oh okay it's a reminder let's do it. But previously, um, it was sad that I, I didn't get a chance to to, to participate. And it was always a joy to see people um, to do it. But uh, I was saddened when I couldn't do it myself.
1: Nick, Nikki, what was your fear level as the producer of our services the first Christmas Eve when we were in the COVID pandemic and everyone was at church wearing oh. masks and then they have to drop their mask to their chin to blow out the candle? What, what does a producer think in that moment?
0: Well, uh, in the moment is the key word because I don't think any of us really thought about it. <laughs> we, to,
1: let's all honestly <laughs> flammable articles from our chin and old not, candles.
0: Yeah, did not think about it until we got to that moment. I remember Pastor Jim standing on stage, and I just remember getting on the headset, talking to to, to my team, and saying, "Guys, we're about to blow out candles in the auditorium during COVID."
2: How's this going to work? How
0: is this going to work?
2: It, talked about oh. so we talked about so many ways to prevent the spread of this disease yes. over the course of those years that the one time we're like you, we're all gonna command Every, everybody to exhale at the same time <laughs> yeah. it was like super spreader Christmas well wait a minute that just sunk into my skull so you're fi-
1: I was thinking that the fear would be everyone just no. drop their masks to their chin and they're holding their candle right there so people might be lighting their faces on fire that, that's also I mean, true that, but that wasn't the true, first. But no. that wasn't the first fear no but we had hundreds of people blowing their breath yes. on the backs of the heads of the people yes. of,
0: um, that was it so I literally remember standing s- standing side stage and going what is about to happen here and it happened and I guess everybody was okay but that like churches around the world just went crazy with memes on social media being like everybody's faces when it was like time to light up like Burock it was just like this like <laughs> are we really gonna do this
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remember that, that two years nuts. when we weren't allowed to breathe I remember that. <laughs> yeah I remember that.
0: So, um, friends, if you are in the area, we would love for you to join us for Christmas Eve. You can head to ccclife.org slash Christmas to find service times for all of our campuses. Uh, You can watch online, but we really want you to be in person. If you are out of the area... We want you to find a church in your area that you can go and worship to in person. Um, also, Christmas Day, we have a pre recorded uh, service that you can join in on with your family, whoever you're watching with. Um, and that's going to be streaming all day wherever you uh, would normally watch us online.
1: Is that an every hour on the yes. hour thing? Yes, every like, hour on like the hour. Like the Christmas story on TBS?
0: Yes, you yes. can go there and watch it uh, at any point. So we hope that you'll check those things out and come join us in person for Christmas Eve. Clayton, what are we talking about?
2: Uh, well, we are in Mark chapter 11 today. Um, we are going to be looking at uh, a, an event in the last week of Jesus's life. So, let me give you a little context for this. So, that's C in common method is context. Uh, two, two kinds of context. The first is historical and the other is literary. So, the historical context is this. If you ask someone, why did they crucify Jesus? I think most people might have a hard time answering that question. So like in the big picture, why did Jesus have to die? A lot of people know the answer. He's got to pay for sin and and so on. But if you say, why did the leaders in Jerusalem, you know, the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities, why did they think that he was worth executing? What were the the events that led to that? Most people would probably have to think a little while before they came up with the answers. This chapter is actually the explanation, okay? So the first two dominoes, that tip over that lead to Jesus's arrest beside the fact that in general, some of the Jewish leaders were sort of like, we don't like Jesus too much, but like the actual events that led to it are in this chapter. We're not looking at the first one. The first one is when Jesus rides in on a donkey. So we talk about Palm Sunday. Well, when he was doing that, he was basically saying, Hey, I'm the King. So they're looking at him saying, is he coming to take over? So that's the first one. The passage we're looking at here, starting in verse 12, is actually the second event that eventually leads to them wanting to to kill Jesus. So we're going to talk about what that is. So that's kind of the historical context for this. In terms of the literary context, there is something interesting that happens because we're kind of going to read two, three-ish stories in this event here. And the stories make up something that this is an official term in biblical studies. It is called a Markin sandwich, okay? A Markin sandwich is... uh, Corned beef on rye with Swiss cheese. No, that's a Reuben sandwich, okay? Uh, A Markin sandwich is when Mark has a tendency to tell stories like this. He'll tell one half of a story, stop, tell something else that happened, and then come back to the first story. And he'll tell it sort of like- all right, if you read all three of these moments together, you get a bigger message than if you just read one of them at a time. And so thats you'll see that over and over and over again. Maybe you've already noticed some of those things in the book of Mark, but this is a big one uh, for the Mark and Sandwich. So, oh, oh, here we go. That sound means it's time for
1: your comma tip of the week. The best interpreter of the Bible is... The Bible itself, context is king, and what comes before or after a text you are reading may be just as important for understanding as the actual portion you are reading. Flow of thought matters. So, if you miss a day of your reading schedule, should you go back and play catch-up? Well, that depends on your motivation. If you're playing catch-up out of a sense of guilt, we'd say, no, no. If you're doing so because your desire is to understand better what you're reading, we'd say yes. Guilt is a terrible life coach. Our goal with Bible Savvy is for people to understand, enjoy, and apply God's word. And this has been your comma tip of the week.
2: That is a great tip. So, yes, in this one, paying attention to how the the bread and the meat of this sandwich work together is going to help you understand because if you don't, you, you will probably misunderstand at least one of these stories. So uh, let's check it out. Um, Eric, if you would read for us Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany,
1: Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive
2: your sins." All right, let's talk about O, which is observations. What do you see in this passage?
0: So, uh, the first thing that I observed is maybe what some might think, like, was Jesus hangry?
1: <laughs>
0: was he, was he like, upset that, you know, he was hungry and there was some fruit on the tree? Um, I think if somebody looks at it, they go first glance, well, yeah, maybe, but no, not at all, actually. Um, the tree should have had fruit if it was in full leaf. But it was well, right?
2: It said no, it wasn't the season for figs actually. It's the exact opposite.
0: Okay. It's, so it's then, almost which, it's
1: almost weirder. Which make yeah, which makes it seem more random.
0: Yeah. Okay, Why is so, Jesus
1: mad at a tree that's not producing figs when it's not fig season? Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's let's dig into that for people. Like what what was he getting at there?
2: Well, you could think that here's what is going on with Jesus. He's hungry. He was frustrated that he couldn't find figs, even though he knew it had a reason. And like you or me was irrationally angry. Now that's possible, but what we know from the character of Jesus in every other place is that he didn't tend to do things that were just sort of off the cuff. Like he just lost his temper. First of all, that'd be sinful. Second of all, um, we have no demonstration that he was sort of that kind of on the fly doing random, you know, things cause he just felt like it. Uh, especially when they tell the story of it in the Gospels, these are purposeful, meaningful things. So my guess is that that's not the case. Um, so this, I think, is where the, the, the sandwich comes in. Okay. Because the the thing with the tree is the bread, right? Like it comes first, something else happens, and then they come back to it. So the thing in the middle is is probably the the thing for understanding it. Mm-hmm. The bread holds the meat of the sandwich. So if you ever see... The two
1: sides that are the bread. Got to ask what the meat is. Yeah. The bread doesn't define the sandwich.
2: It just holds the sandwich. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm. The flavor of the meat has to seep into mm. the, to the bread.
0: You guys are making me hungry now.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. But there's no food for you, so you'll have to curse something. <laughs> so, um, But we should, we should dig into what that thing in, in the middle is. But yes, the fig tree thing raises a question because otherwise you're left with a very weird Jesus in this.
1: Uh, my observation is he's not happy with the fig tree and he's not happy with what's going on in the temple. Yeah. So th- we, see, we see two
2: instances here of Jesus seeing something that he doesn't like. Yeah. Um, I, I look at uh, the, not just it, he's not okay with what's going on in the temple. Um, he, he takes action just like he did with the fig tree. He takes action to um, condemn the temple. So he he, he actually, uh, you know, he, he's doing this thing where he, he clears out the money changers and the people who are selling animals and all of these things from the temple courts because he, he doesn't like that. So he's uh, enacting some form of judgment on this, just like he, he did with the tree.
0: Uh, another one that I saw was uh, just this really you know, the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were supposed to be, they were the rel- religious leaders of their time, and here they are plotting to kill Jesus. Like, the one thing that they should know better not to do is the one thing that they did because they feared him. Like, they they did not like that people were drawn to him and his teachings uh, instead of their own. It, it's, it's, it's scary.
1: Another thing that sticks out to me is starting in verse 22 where Jesus is teaching them about prayer. And it, if Jesus cursing the fig tree comes across as him being irrationally angry, this teaching to me comes across as Pollyannish, optimistic. If you believe in your heart, you'll have whatever you ask for. And so that one is a
2: that one is a hard one to unpack too. Uh, another thing I see in here is um, okay. So let me let me uh, highlight something about that Pollyannish thing. Um, In verse 23, he says, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it'll be done. Um, We tend to read that verse as a generic proverb type thing, right? Like if you say to any mountain, it'll it'll go throw itself into the sea. I wonder, okay, so we don't have the same mindset as a first century Jew. When we think about the temple, um, we think of it as a historical thing. Okay, that's a thing I'm supposed to know about for the Bible, but for them, it was the most important place in the universe. Like it was uh, the heart and soul of their life as a people and how they understood the world. It was the place where God came to dwell and it was the place their sin was dealt with. It was the symbol of uh, who they were. And in a world where they felt threatened, it was very, very precious. It meant a whole lot. And it was on a mountain. So if you said uh, the mountain of the Lord or Mount Zion or some of these things, like there was a mountain you'd be thinking of. So if you walked out of the temple and you said, if you said to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, it would do it. They're not just thinking, oh, so I can rearrange the geography of a, a country. They're thinking about the symbol, right? Like if we, if we walked out of Capitol Hill and if you said, you know, if you told the hill to, you know, go throw itself in the Potomac, <laughs> like that, that would mean something other than, oh, you can, you can terraform Washington, D.C. It would mean something, you were, you were saying something about Congress or the Capitol or the government or something. So they're probably hearing this as, oh, wait, Jesus, who just wrote in as a king, is saying something about the current regime here in, in Israel. So part of what's going on has more like current event subtext than just general principles on prayer. Um, and I, so I think some of that's what's going on there. So he's saying he's got strong language because he's got a, a, a serious situation he's addressing
1: which both situates it in Jerusalem, but also helps us grasp some of the teaching on prayer, which is the subversive power of prayer. Prayer can radically change systems, institutions, oppression, systemic injustices. So it, it both strengthens the teaching
2: on prayer and makes it make more sense when right. you put it in its context. That's right. Because otherwise it sounds like, we should just be able to do random, amazing things, which like at one level, you're like, well, sure. Prayer can do pretty amazing things that seem pretty counterintuitive, but it's not random. It's not purposeless. It's not just like the kid who's like, well, if, if, if I just pray and God gives this to me, I'll know God's real, you know, you know let, let a you know, bag of gold appear. It's like, well, no, it's not that. Jesus is sending uh, his disciples on a mission that ultimately does upend society and does transform things. So he's saying, you're not going completely powerless this is not something where it's it's you with nothing um the power of god is there to undermine things you think couldn't be changed like it's a big deal
0: yeah but it also doesn't act like a genie in a bottle for us yeah
2: but not a genie in a bottle yeah no No, it has to be aligned with your kingdom
1: come Mm -hmm. your will be done on earth it is as it is in heaven not just hey chair slide across the room as some magic parlor trick yeah that's not what he's teaching
0: And I think that there's also a a seriousness to it where people go, well, I mean, there are some things that I pray for that I think should be in line with God's will and they're not answered. Yeah. What do I do do with that? You know, there's there's, um, not always the genie tricks, but some people wrestling with, well, how come it's not, how come my prayer isn't being answered? You know?
1: Another observation for me is from this same section where Jesus is teaching on prayer. We see both the, the ingredient of faith in prayer we also see the ingredient of forgiveness in prayer mm. and this is the this is the second place in the gospels where when jesus is teaching on prayer he is very specifically linking it to our willingness to forgive other people so the lord's prayer uh, where jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray and so my my observation here is I wonder how many of us suffer from an ineffective, powerless prayer life because of our unwillingness to forgive other people is how much is unforgiveness
2: an obstacle in people's prayer lives. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the sandwich here and um, I want to, I want us to ask the question. Okay. So what's the deal with the fig tree? So let's talk about the meat for a second. The meat is Jesus goes into the temple and he, he doesn't like what he sees there. He sees that it's not what it's supposed to be. Um, and it's worth knowing that at that time, um, uh, the Israel was occupied by Rome. And so, the Jewish temple, some of the leaders there were, at, frankly, compromising with Rome just so they could kind of not get destroyed. Because there was always, the temple was always a flashpoint. People would come and, you know, uh, zealots, people would try to do things there and, the Romans would realize, oh, there's an uprising going on because people are kind of rallying around this religious national symbol. And so the religious establishment at the time had basically said, let's um, let's kind of compromise enough that um, what we're gonna do here um, will let us keep our thing, but also not necessarily do all the things that we need to do. And so when Jesus is looking at it, he's saying, this is this is not what it was meant to be. And you're putting your hope in something that's, that you think is going to keep the peace, but it's not really working and you're compromising. So he's condemning it. So he's coming like a prophet saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, so he does that. What do you think the fig tree is all about? Okay, given given that, why tell this story about a tree?
0: Um, I So whenever I've read this story previously, um, I tried to... I saw a connection to it in the past, or maybe it was, maybe he hasn't done it yet, I can't quite remember the storyline, where uh, Jesus refers to the the teachers of the law as whitewashed tombs, where they're like beautiful on the outside, but they're full of dead people's bones on the inside. Um, So you look one way, but you're actually another way. So it's like a form of deceit and hypocrisy. That's how I've seen it in the past, is that? accurate
2: uh, it's it's connected okay because um, where that comes up in the book of Matthew is at a in a parallel section to this so it's during the last week of jesus's life he's in the temple when he condemns the religious yeah. leaders for yeah. that so it's some of the same kind of criticism he's criticizing the temple he's criticizing the temple leadership he's doing these things saying this isn't okay so he's condemning um so it's probably thematically linked okay it's not directly linked though gotcha Okay, so Nikki's, Nikki's
1: playing in the right ballpark here talking about the, the leaders of Israel. You could also just talk about Israel as a whole and say the fig tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel and them not producing fruit, not putting their faith in Jesus, not understanding the things of God, not bearing the fruit that they ought to. Israel was meant to be a blessing to the entire world. So if if this group of people whom God ordained to bear fruit, to be a blessing to every nation on the earth is not bearing fruit. What are they good for? So you go leaders of Israel, Israel, but the sandwich is the temple, right? So Jesus curses the fig tree because it's not producing fruit. Then he condemns the temple because it's not producing the kind of fruit that it's supposed to be producing. What's happening at the temple is not what's supposed to be happening at the temple. Then we get to the last part of the sandwich. Now we're back to the fig tree and I'll, I'll toss it to Clayton here to, to wrap this up. But the fig tree withers.
2: So Clayton, what do we do with that? So what ends up happening is if you say the first thing he cursed withered and the second thing, he also condemned it. What's gonna to happen to it? Well, it turns out within a generation, the temple was actually destroyed. So this is one of the things that um, in other passages, Jesus says very overtly. He says, this te- not one stone is going to be left upon another. And he's he's saying the consequence of what's going on right now is that God is going to remove this place. And and then it does happen. So if you're a reader of the gospel at this time, um, if this is either before or after the temple has been destroyed, you know, when you're reading it, you're looking at this saying, oh, wait, Jesus, when he condemned the temple, what what happened to the fig tree eventually happened to it. Um, the, the same consequence is coming. The... The interesting thing about this is that when Jesus is at his trial and people are standing up to accuse him of things, what do they say that he did? They don't say, oh, well, you know, he healed on the Sabbath and some other things that really, you know, tick them off. Like they say, he said that he would destroy the temple. So they're looking at him as a prophet condemning the temple for not being what it's meant to be. And they're saying that's a threat to us in our society. That's a threat to the establishment. That's that's Those are, those are fighting words there. If he says that the temple's condemned, so this is a very controversial thing. It's not just a, you know, a random story about you know being hungry. It's also not just a, you know kind of mild criticism. This is a, a very provocative, like prophetic, symbolic statement from Jesus. So would it would it be fair to say that Jesus was not irrationally angry, but he was angry? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. He was angry for the right things. He, he looked at what the heart of God was for his people and for the place that he chose to dwell. And he said, this is not what it's meant to be. You know, something new has to come. So let's talk about a uh, message. The, the first M and comma, uh, if you're going to take a detail from this and you are going to pull out a message, what would it be?
1: My message would be that in the mind of God, there's a purpose for everything and there's a purpose for our lives. So when Jesus looks at the temple and condemns it and essentially says, this is not what this was made for. Hmm. I think he could also look at our lives when we are engaging in sinful acts, rebellion against God, doing whatever we want, whatever you want to call it. And he would look at us and say, that's not what you were made for. And I, and I contemplate that in contrast to a life of bearing fruit, of, li- of living a life where God says, that's what I made you for. Um, so my message is, in the mind of God, there's a purpose for everything, including our lives.
0: All right. My message is uh, coming from uh, verse 24. Uh, and it's that our prayer life produces fruit when we are in right relationship with God and people.
2: It's good. Uh, something uh, sort of similar is uh, prayer changes things, even things that don't seem like they can be changed. So, um, not just, and, and that, you know, obviously the things we talked about, it's not just random sorts of things, but when there are purposes of God that uh, we say, this is God's desire for the world or for his people. And we can look at those and say, there's no way that's going to happen. The same way that they might look and say, there's no way that we're going to, you know, clean things up. There's messed up things in the temple here and the religious leaders don't get it. And we're on the outs and, and so on. And Jesus hardly looks like a King or whatever. Like Jesus says, you can throw this mountain into the sea. That's how dramatic it could be. Um, I think there are times when we look at what God desires for his people and we say, well, strategically, realistically, you know, my path from here to there, I can't see, you know, it's like, no, the prayer changes things, even things that don't seem like they should be changed or could be changed. Yeah. And when we doubt it's normally because we're thinking about our capabilities, not God's capabilities. Yep. Yep. So we're going to, we're going to use that um, as our, our meditation here, um, I'm going, to, I'm going to read the passage here that talks about um, uh, what happens when we pray. But what I want you to do as you're meditating uh, is not just think about those words, but think about where in your life you're saying, hey, I should be praying a bigger prayer. Uh, this is, this is uh, God's purpose, and I should be praying in line with it. So this is what uh, Jesus says. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. All right, let's talk about application A, the last step in comma. What are we going to do about this?
1: I'm going to take the the phrase from my message, which was, it's not what you were made for, and apply it to temptation. So I wonder what would happen in my life if every time I was nibbling on the edges of temptation, if I just said out loud, Eric, that's not what you were made for. <laughs> I wonder what that would do to yeah. how I how I approach temptation. So that's my application today.
0: Hmm. Uh, for me, I'm going to, I want to pay attention to what well, verse 25 says, if, we, if when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, it's, it's paying attention to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. If I sense that there is something that is not right between me and God and me or someone else. And if, if I sense that, uh, it's just to not brush it away, but it's to call it out, to uh, ask for forgiveness from God, or to go and have a conversation with whoever that person is popping into my mind. Just just go and try to, to the best of my ability, resolve it.
2: Yeah, um, I I think for application, um, the the simple version is is pray bigger prayers. But I think um, there, there's something that Pastor Jim says uh, sometimes when he's coaching people on prayer. He says prayer requires imagination. Like sometimes our prayer gets really rote and dull because we just sort of say the same things the same way. Um, But one thing that helps you break out of that is to actually imagine, say, what would happen if this prayer was answered? What would it look like? And you start to imagine, oh, this person's life would be different or that these circumstances would change or whatever. And to start imagining down the line um, what would it look like? You can think about that for your family, right? Like God's purposes for your family is that uh, your marriage be healthier, your, your kids grow up uh, knowing Jesus. Well, what does that look like? What would that, you know, follow the line in 10 years, in 20 years, what would that look at and you? Pray along those lines. Pray for your church along those lines. Pray for your, your uh, you know, you're reaching out and trying to witness to someone. Pray along those bigger lines of saying, what if God changed things that right now I don't see a way that for that to change, but I could imagine if God really moved, that would happen. Um, and so I think that kind of prayer is what I want to be challenged to do.
0: That's great. All right, friends, that's all that we have for you. Thanks for listening this week. Join us again next Monday for a new episode. We'll look at another passage from the Bible Savvy reading schedule. In the meantime, if you're not following along with the reading plan, you can check out biblesavvy.com to download it. Also, you can subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Email us your questions or suggestions at podcast at biblesavvy.com. Lastly, tell your friends and we'll talk to you next week.